Hello everyone, and welcome back. I hope everyone's doing great, as is my custom to hope. Such is my custom to hope that you are doing quite alright. <laughs> Mammonite says, Samuel! I, I got Samuel a couple of times because my, my full name is actually Samuel. Uh, S-A-M-U-E-L. But, my cousins used to like to call me Samwise Gamgee. Um, and then occasionally Samwise son of Hamfast, and then after that for a while Samwise son of Slimfast, which my dad did not like. <laughs> Sometimes this is the best time of the show, says Gems. Well, I'm glad you're enjoying it. Um, I do apologize everyone about Tuesday and Vintage Sidecar. We have had a ton of fun with The Hobbit so far, um, and if you want to find episodes of that, you can find it at this link right here, or um, if you follow the some of the links in the YouTube description, I've got links to big lists of playlists, because for whatever reason, I don't like the the YouTube playlist system. It's just not very like organized. I don't know. I I, I could see a better way basically. I had an, uh, an interesting experience this week that some of y'all might be aware of. Um, I re-recorded chapters five and six of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. So book five, you know, really diving back in time. I want to I wanna say to you all, it was the worst recording I've ever done in terms of the sheer mountainous volume of mistakes I made during that recording, but it's in my it's in my long-term goals somewhere to totally re-record um, and probably restream. You know, if I'm going to be recording it, I might as well stream it, right? Uh, re-record the entirety of the Harry Potter one, and I want to do it with, with more discussion like we do now and a lot higher quality audio and such, and I think that would be fun. Um, the beans are back in town, <laughs> says Mirden. You're trying to get me to sing, aren't you? Good luck to you. Just a city boy, born and raised in South Detroit. Wait, that's not even the song. That's not even the song I was gonna sing. The beans are back in town. Beans are back in town. Boy, I've been talking to my brother. He had an excellent idea that I have never thought about before. I don't want to share it yet. I don't want to blow it yet. But I'll I'll tease it. It is um. Here we go. Here's the perfect teaser sentence. You ready? It's a bit grim. There we go. Brothers are great for ideas. Mine is excellent for ideas. He'll he'll latch onto something like this and just like run with it. Um, he's a lot like tuna, just like a, a great source of energy. When sometimes like I'm thinking like, oh boy, I'm I'm running a little thin here. Okay, now for real, it's time. It's officially time. We have to talk about review. We have to. We must. We must. We have to. So, last time on Percy Jackson out loud. Chapter 7, my dinner goes up in smoke. In chapter 8, we capture a flag. So, chapter 7, that's where we get a, our big, um, one of our big answers. It's just after we've gotten one of our big answers, right? We have just learned that Percy is indeed a demigod, right? It means that Greek mythology is alive and well underneath the everyday world, but now we've got a bunch more questions. What does that mean for us? Um, and as... Percy is trying to kind of, you know, um, trying to make, uh, establish a reputation for himself. Something that he feels is pretty important. Something that he says he has had to do a number of times before at different locations. Um, this is, this is a habit of his. And as he's trying to maintain this, or as he's trying to build this reputation, um, he has an interesting experience with, uh, some, hmm, well, with, with a bathroom. Uh, he is dragged in there by um, uh, uh, somebody from an Ares cabin named Clarice, uh, who we don't think is probably going to be a very good friend of Percy's anytime soon. Water is blasting around. We don't really know why. Um, we have dinner with the rest of the crew as, as you know, Annabeth is kind of explaining 
a little bit more about how the world works, right? Who's, who's your parent, Annabeth? Well, Athena, goddess of wisdom and battle. So we know a little bit about Athena there. And then, of course, her father is uh, a professor of history at West Point. Now, uh, as we are, as we're listening to Annabeth explain, we head toward dinner. You know, we we know that there's there's something odd going on in the in the sort of mythical world. Uh, we know that that Annabeth is expecting, hoping for a quest, and Luke, as they're sort of circling up and they've got all their plates in hand and they're heading toward this fire. Um, instead of starting to eat, uh, Luke is explaining that you know he doesn't really put a lot of stock in that idea. What do they do with this fire? They choose sort of the best bits of their meal, you know, the, the best slice of brisket, the butteriest roll, um, you know, the, a, a big fat bunch of grapes, and they toss it in this fire as a tribute to the gods. Um, this is something that was a pretty common practice uh, back in the day, and when I say back in the day, I mean uh, back in the time of ancient Greece, uh, when they, they actively worshipped worshipped these gods. This is an offering, but Perseus, of course, does not know who to offer his offering to. He asks for a revelation and hopes to find out soon, and in our next chapter, we capture a flag, chapter 8, well, it doesn't, we don't find out till the very end, but we find out. Um, capture the flag. Percy is having a hard time knowing sort of where he fits in with all of this. He's got enough clues now to know that he should be developing some sort of special skills, right? All the Hephaestus kids seem to be super good at metallurgy, metalworking. Um, the Ares kids seem to be great at fighting. Where does that put Percy? Well, um, he's pretty good at canoeing. But other than that, it doesn't seem like he's got any special skills. He's not super fast. He's not great at archery. He's, he doesn't seem to have an extreme amount of talent as a swordsman. Um, with the exception of one kind of notable instance where he's sword fighting with Luke. They're doing some sword training. And suddenly, with sort of a burst of energy that seems to come kind of out of nowhere, Percy is able to disarm him, disarm Luke easily. What's going on there? Well, we'll find out very soon. They play Capture the Flag. That's a big deal here at Camp Half-Blood. Uh, these two big banners, um, there is a, a wooded area where they have to run through and capture the flag. And by the way, can I say, uh, as someone who has played some paintball, um, capture the flag out in like a really dynamic sort of wooded environment uh, or, or what have you, so much fun. And, uh, well... I think uh, once quarantine's over, we'll, we'll do we'll do sidecar capture the flag. No, that would be fun though. Uh, at some point to uh, to mess around with it, and maybe we can we'll carry around some phone swords. We'll do we'll do a big capture the flag, uh, camp half blood LARP. <laughs> y'all, don't let me run too far down this trail because I will find the end of it. Um, sidecar LARPs. That would not be fun. Can we agree on this? I think so. <laughs> JCA already has a LARP weapon. I have never done a LARP, but I think it's, it would be the sort of thing that I could probably take to just fine. JCA is all about this. <laughs> JCA, all right, I might have to enlist you as a, as a, a brainstormer for this. Uh, Rowlett says, Capture the Flag was my favorite gym game in elementary school. Yeah, it's, it, it's a lot of fun already in like a gymnasium environment or a school environment, but like having a cool wooded area or, you know, like a, a little like ghost town sort of thing. We had a cool paintball course near us when, when I was growing up. Anyway, we play Capture the Flag and Percy kind of gets left behind as a, as a border guard, uh, someone who is essentially just there to like it seems attract attention from the opposing side. Uh, of course, all the Ares kids are on the other side, and uh, Ares 
Kids like to fight. They show up and it's Clarice and a bunch of friends versus Percy all by himself. Not great, right? Uh, they're kind of kicking his butt, and then he ends up sort of like backed into the backed into the river. He's not in a great position, and he just once again feels this surge of energy and manages to not only defeat them but distract them long enough that uh, here comes uh, a big group of his his uh, allies with the enemy flag. They have won the game, and you'd think that would be it, except two things happen all of a sudden. First. They've been hearing these growls in the woods, and now a hellhound runs out of the woods and attacks, uh, heading straight for Percy. Uh, um, uh, not Mr. D. Uh, Mr. Brunner, so Chiron, we now know him as Chiron, uh, is able to dispatch the, the hellhound first. But that means two things. First of all, uh, someone from inside camp must have summoned it, because that's the only way it could have gotten in. And the second is that it was headed straight for Percy. That must mean that... Percy's aura is pretty strong, and as Percy steps back into the water and feels it start to heal him and give him this surge of energy, a sign appears above his head, and we have one of our next enormous questions answered. Who is Percy's father? Well, I think Chiron puts it best. Poseidon. Earth Shaker, Stormbringer, Father of Horses. Hail Perseus Jackson, Son of the Sea God. Now that, now that is the ending of a chapter, y'all. That's some drama right there. And I wish, I'm, I'm glad I have a chance to go back and edit these for YouTube because I goofed up that final line last week. I'm glad I have another chance. Okay, Son of the Sea God indeed, Mirden. Okay, everyone, I want to thank you very much for being here. McNerd, Memnite, Mirden. Hogwarts Hippie, Charlie Clear, Rowlett, Luke. I'm not going to be able to... I'm just I'm just picking the names I see right there in chat right now. Of course, over in Discord, uh, we've got McNerd and Baby Tyranny, which is... I like that name, Baby Tyranny. Uh, Jade Dragon, Joseph Hartzler, Luis, Sander, Mighty Monkey. McNerd. McNerd. Yeah, what a chapter ending indeed. Yeah, it was a big one. Son of Fish Boy. You, I don't think you want to say Son of Fish Boy. Something tells me there's a... Uh, Something tells me that would be, shall we say, uh, a bit passé. Not passé, a bit, uh, well, frankly, a bit rude. Earthshaker is a super cool title. Okay, now, everyone, I think it's time. Let's get into our chapter. For those of you who are wondering, my name is Sam. This is Sidecar Stories. And tonight is Vintage Sidecar. Nope, no, it's not. Tonight is Flying Sidecar. A voice actor's venture through some stories we all love. Let's get started. Oh boy, you can hear my mumble mouth already. I gotta do my, gotta do my, my vocal exercises. That's just a uh, a, a mouth dexterity exercise that I got from <laughs> from Finding Nemo, and then some good good sirens. All right, ready. Let's do it. Percy Jackson and the Olympians, The Lightning Thief. Chapter 9. I am offered a quest. The next morning, Chiron moved me to cabin 3. 
I didn't have to share with anybody. I had plenty of room for all my stuff. The Minotaur's horn, one set of spare clothes, and a toiletry bag. I got to sit at my own dinner table, pick all my own activities, call lights out whenever I felt like it, and not listen to anybody else. And I was absolutely miserable. Just when I'd started to feel accepted, to feel like I had a home in Cabin 11, and I might be a normal kid, or as normal as you can be when you're a half-blood, I'd been separated out as if I had some rare disease. Nobody mentioned the Hellhound, but I got the feeling they were all talking about it behind my back. The attack had scared everybody. It sent two messages. One, that I was the son of the sea god, and two, monsters would stop at nothing to kill me. They could even invade a camp that had always been considered safe. The other campers steered clear of me as much as possible. Cabin Eleven was too nervous to have sword class with me after what I'd done to the Ares folks in the woods, so my lessons with Luke became one-on-one. He pushed me harder than ever, and wasn't afraid to bruise me up in the process. "'You're gonna need all the training you can get,' he promised as we were working with swords and flaming torches. Now, let's try that viper beheading strike again. Fifty more repetitions. Annabeth still taught me Greek in the mornings, but she seemed distracted. Every time I said something, she scowled at me, as if I'd just poked her between the eyes. After lessons, she would walk away, muttering to herself, Quest? Poseidon? Dirty run. Gotta make a plan. Even Clarice kept her distance, though her venomous looks made it clear she wanted to kill me for breaking her magic spear. I wished she would just yell or punch me or something. I'd rather get into fights every day than be ignored. I knew somebody at camp resented me, because one night I came into my cabin to find a mortal newspaper dropped inside the doorway. A copy of the New York Daily News opened to the Metro page. The article took me almost an hour to read, because the angrier I got, the more the words floated around the page. Boy and Mother, Still Missing After Freak Car Accident, by Eileen Smythe. Sally Jackson and son Percy are still missing one week after their mysterious disappearance. The family's badly burned 78 Camaro was discovered last Saturday on a north Long Island road, with the roof ripped off and the front axle broken. The car had flipped and skidded for several hundred feet before exploding. Mother and son had gone for a weekend vacation to Montauk, but left hastily under mysterious circumstances. Small traces of blood were found in the car and near the scene of the wreck, but there were no other signs of the missing Jacksons. Residents in the rural area reported seeing nothing unusual around the time of the accident. Ms. Jackson's husband, Gabe Ugliano, claims that his stepson, Perseus Jackson, was a troubled child who had been kicked out of numerous boarding schools and has been expressing violent tendencies in the past. Police would not say whether son Percy is a suspect in his mother's disappearance, but they have not ruled out foul play. Below are recent pictures of Sally Jackson and Percy. Police urge anyone with information to call the following toll-free Crime Stoppers hotline. The phone number was circled in black marker. I wadded the newspaper up and threw it away, and flopped down on my bunk in the middle of the empty cabin. Lights out, I told myself miserably. That night I had my worst dream yet.
I was running along the beach in a storm. This time there was a city behind me. Not New York. The sprawl was different. Buildings spread further apart, palm trees and low hills in the distance. About a hundred yards down the surf, two men were fighting. They looked like TV wrestlers, muscular with beards and long hair. Both wore flowing Greek tunics, one trimmed in blue, the other in green. They grappled with each other, wrestled, kicked, and headbutted, and every time they connected, lightning flashed. The sky grew darker. The wind rose. I had to stop them. I didn't know why, but the harder I ran, the more the wind blew me back, until I was running in place, my heels digging uselessly in the sand. Over the roar of the storm, I could hear the blue-robed one yelling to the green-robed one, Give it back! Give it back! Like a kindergartner fighting over a toy. The waves got bigger, crashing into the beach, spraying me with salt. I yelled, Stop it! Stop fighting! The ground shook. Laughter came from somewhere under the earth, and a voice so deep and evil, it turned my blood to ice. Come down, little hero. The voice crooned. Come down. The sand split beneath me, opening up a crevice straight down to the center of the earth. My feet slipped and darkness swallowed me. And I woke up, sure that I was falling. I was still in bed in cabin three. My body told me it was morning, but it was dark outside and thunder rolled across the hills. A storm was brewing. I hadn't dreamed that. I heard a clopping sound at the door, a hoof knocking on the threshold. Come in. Grover trotted inside, looking worried. Mr. D wants to see you. Why? We want to kill. I, I mean, you better let him tell you. Nervously, I got dressed and followed, sure that I was in big trouble. For days, I'd been expecting a summons to the big house. Now that I was declared a son of Poseidon, one of the big three gods who weren't supposed to have kids, I figured it was a crime for me to just be alive. The other gods had probably been debating the best way to punish me for existing, and now Mr. D was ready to deliver their verdict. Over Long Island Sound, the sky looked like ink soup coming to a boil. A hazy curtain of rain was coming down in our direction. I asked Grover if we needed an umbrella. No, he said. It never rains here unless we want it to. I pointed at the storm. So what the heck is that, then? He glanced uneasily at the sky. It'll pass around us. Bad weather always does. I realized he was right. In the week since I'd been here, it had never once been overcast. The few rain clouds I'd seen had skirted right around the edge of the valley. But this... This storm. This one was huge. At the volleyball pit, the kids from Apollo's cabin were playing a morning game against the satyrs. 
Dionysus' twins were walking around in the strawberries' fields, making the plants grow. Everybody was going about their normal business, but they looked tense. They kept their eyes on the storm. Grover and I walked up to the front porch of the big house. Dionysus sat at the pinochle table in his tiger-striped Hawaiian shirt with his Diet Coke, just as he had on my very first day. Chiron sat across the table in his fake wheelchair. They were playing against invisible opponents. Two sets of cards hovering in the air. Uh, well, 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 Mr. D said without looking up. Our little celebrity. I waited. Come closer, Mr. D said. I don't expect me to kowtow to you mortal just because old Barnacle Beard is your father. A net of lightning flashed across the clouds. Thunder shook the windows of the house. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Dionysus said. Chiron feigned interest in his pinochle cards. Grover cowered by the railing, his hooves clopping back and forth. If I had my way, Dionysus said, I would cause your molecules to erupt in flames. We'd sweep the ashes and be done with a lot of trouble, but Chiron here seems to feel that this would be against my mission at this cursed camp. Keep you little brats safe from harm. A spontaneous combustion is a form of harm, Mr. D, Chiron put in. Nonsense, Dionysus said. And the boy wouldn't feel a thing. Regardless, I, I, I'd agreed to restrain myself. I'm thinking of turning you into a dolphin instead, sending you back to your father. Mr. D, Chiron warned. All right, Dionysus relented. There's one more option, but it's deadly foolishness. Dionysus rose, and the invisible player's cards dropped to the table. Um... I'm off to Olympus for the emergency meeting. If the boy's still here when I get back, I'll turn him into an Atlantic bottlenose. Do you understand? And Percy Jackson, if you're smart, you'll see that that's a much more sensible choice than what Chiron feels that you must do. Dionysus picked up a playing card, twisted it, and became a plastic rectangle. A credit card? No, a security pass. He snapped his fingers. The air seemed to fold and bend around him. He became a hologram, then a wind, and then he was gone, leaving only the smell of fresh-pressed grapes lingering behind. Chiron smiled at me, but he looked tired and strained. Sit, Percy, please, and Grover. We did. Chiron laid his cards on the table, a winning hand he hadn't gotten to use. Tell me, Percy, what did you make of the Hellhound? Just hearing the name made me shudder. Chiron probably wanted me to say, Ah, heck, it was nothing. I eat Hellhounds for breakfast. But I didn't feel like lying. It, it scared me, I said. If you hadn't shot it, I'd be dead. Hmm. You'll meet worse, Percy. Far worse before you're done. 
Done with what? Your quest, of course. Will you accept it? I glanced at Grover, who was crossing his fingers. Um, sir, you... Uh, you, you, have, you haven't told me what it is yet. Chiron grimaced. Well, that's the hard part. The details. Thunder rumbled across the valley. The storm clouds had now reached the edge of the beach. As far as I could see, the sky and sea were boiling together. Poseidon and Zeus, I said. They're fighting over something valuable, something that was stolen, aren't they? Chiron and Grover exchanged looks. Chiron sat forward in his wheelchair. How do you know that? My face felt hot. Oh, I wish I didn't have to open my big mouth. I mean, the weather since Christmas has been weird, like the sea and the sky are fighting. And then I talked to Annabeth, and she'd overheard something about a theft, and... I've, I've also been having these dreams. I knew it, Grover said. Hush, Sater, Chiron ordered. But it is his quest. Grover's eyes were bright with excitement. It must be. Only the Oracle can determine. Chiron stroked his bristly beard. Nevertheless, Percy, you are correct. Your father and Zeus are having their worst quarrel in centuries. They're fighting over something valuable that was stolen. To be precise, a lightning bolt. I laughed nervously. <sighs> yeah, a, a what? Do not take this lightly, Chiron warned. I'm not talking about some tinfoil-covered zigzag that you've seen a second-grade play. I'm talking about a two-foot-long cylinder of high-grade celestial bronze, capped on both ends with god-level explosives. Oh. Zeus's master bolt, Chiron said, getting worked up now. The symbol of his power, from which all other lightning bolts are patterned. The first weapon made by the Cyclopes for the war against the Titans. The bolt that shattered the top of Mount Etna and hurled Cronus from his throne. The master bolt, which packs enough power to make mortal hydrogen bombs look like firecrackers. And it's, it's missing? Stolen, Chiron said. By who? By whom? Chiron corrected. Once a teacher, always a teacher. By you. My mouth fell open. At least, Chiron held up a hand, that is what Zeus thinks. During the winter solstice, at the last council of the gods, Zeus and Poseidon had an argument. Uh, the, the usual nonsense. Mother Rhea always liked you best. Air disasters are more spectacular than sea disasters, etc., etc. Afterward, Zeus realized his master bolt was missing, taken from the throne room under his very nose. He immediately blamed Poseidon. Now a god cannot usurp another god's symbol of power directly. It is forbidden by the most ancient of divine laws. But Zeus believes your father convinced a human hero to take it. But I didn't... Patience and listen, child, Chiron said. 
Zeus has good reason to be suspicious. The forges of the Cyclopes are under the ocean, which gives Poseidon some influence over the makers of his brother's lightning. Zeus believes Poseidon has taken the master boat and is now secretly having the Cyclopes build an arsenal of illegal copies, which might be used to topple Zeus from his throne. The only thing Zeus is not sure about was which hero Poseidon used to steal the boat. Now, Poseidon has openly claimed you as his son. You were in New York over the winter holidays you could have easily snuck into Olympus. Zeus believes he has found his thief. But I've, I've never even been to Olympus. Zeus is crazy. Chiron and Grover glanced nervously at the sky. The clouds didn't seem to be parting around us, as Grover had promised. They were rolling straight over our valley, sealing us in like a coffin lid. Uh, uh, Percy, Grover said, we, we don't use the C word to describe the lord of the sky? Uh, perhaps paranoid. Chiron suggested. Then again, Poseidon has tried to unseat Zeus before. I believe that was question 38 of your final exam. He looked at me as if he actually expected me to remember question 38. How could anyone accuse me of stealing a god's weapon? I couldn't even steal a, a slice of pizza from Gabe's poker party without getting busted. Chiron was waiting for an answer. Uh, something about a, a golden net, I guessed. Poseidon and Hera and a, a few other gods, they, they like, trapped Zeus and wouldn't let him out until he promised to be a, a better ruler, right? Correct, Chiron said. And Zeus has never trusted Poseidon since. Of course, Poseidon denies stealing the master bolt. You took great offense at the accusation that you have been arguing back and forth for months, threatening war. And now you've come along the proverbial last straw. But I'm just a kid. Percy? Grover cut in. If you were Zeus, and you already thought that your brother was plotting to overthrow you, then your brother suddenly admitted that he had broken the sacred oath that he took after World War II. He's fathered a new mortal hero who might be used as a weapon against you. Well... Wouldn't that put a twist in your toga? But I didn't do anything. Poseidon, my dad, he didn't really have this master bolt stolen, did he? Chiron sighed. Well, most thinking observers would agree that thievery is not Poseidon's style. But the sea god is too proud to try convincing Zeus of that. Zeus has demanded that Poseidon return the boat by the summer solstice. That's June 21st, ten days from now. Poseidon wants an apology for being called a thief by that same date. I hoped that diplomacy might prevail, that Hera or Demeter or Hestia would have made the two brothers see saints. But your arrival has inflamed Zeus's temper. Now neither god can back down. Unless someone intervenes, unless the master boat is found and returned to Zeus before the solstice, there will be war. And do you know what a full-fledged war would look like, Percy? Bad, I guessed. 
Imagine the world in chaos. Nature at war with itself. Olympians forced to choose sides between Zeus and Poseidon. Destruction. Carnage. Millions dead. Western civilization turned into a battleground so big it will make the Trojan War look like a water balloon fight. <sighs> Bad, I repeated. And you, Percy Jackson, would be the first to feel Zeus's wrath. It started to rain. Volleyball players stopped their game and stared in stunned silence at the sky. I had brought this storm to cab Half-Blood. Zeus was punishing the whole camp because of me. I was furious. Okay, so I gotta uh, find the stupid bolt, I said, and return it to Zeus. Oh, what better peace offering? Chiron said, than to have the son of Poseidon return Zeus's property. Though if Poseidon doesn't have it, where is this thing? Hmm. I believe I know. Chiron's expression was grim. But of a prophecy I had years ago. Well, some of the lines make sense now. But before I can say more, you must officially take up the quest. You must seek the counsel of the Oracle. Why can't you tell me what a bolt is beforehand? Because if I did, you would be too afraid to accept the challenge. I swallowed. Okay, there's good reason. You agree, then? I looked at Grover who nodded encouragingly. Easy for him. I was the one Zeus wanted to kill. All right, I said. It's better than being turned into a dolphin. Then it's time that you consulted the oracle, Chiron said. Go upstairs, Percy Jackson, to the attic. When you come back down, assuming you're still sane, then we will talk more. So, this is a chapter break, uh, which means that we're going to take this opportunity for a chatter break. Um, this is where we take, like, one minute. I want to take one minute to just talk about the chapter, the things that we've seen thus far, and try to understand the new things that we've learned. Percy is headed up to the attic to accept some sort of guidance from an oracle on a quest to some place that he doesn't know for a conflict he doesn't fully understand. This is compounding some of the things that we talked about last week, right? This is, this genre kind of specializes in that overall tone of confusion. This is something that most other genres kind of eschew, and although they, they will sort of like, you know, they might have instances of it, it's not nearly as pervasive as it is with this young adult genre. And that's important because, like I said before, a lot of what this audience is experiencing is this confusion about the world around them. At this age, when you'd be reading this naturally, like this is just something where you are you are confused about the world. You're expected to start to have your own values. You're supposed to you're supposed to understand things about the world. People expect that from you, and yet you're looking around thinking like, "Oh, baby, I'm trying," and yet I still don't understand. 
that's our that's our chatter break. I just wanna I wanna leave you all with this question as we move forward. Um, as we are watching, as we're watching Percy start to experience these new things, of course, we've already talked about this idea of, uh, you know, getting one big answer, like, mythology is, you know, uh, alive and well, or you're the son of, of Poseidon. Well, a lot of those continue to open up new questions. Here's my question for y'all. Where do we think Percy is headed here? He's had these visions, right? Consider those, think back to those. Um, and we can consider those if we want to use sort of our some of our main ideas. We can consider those like a pretty straightforward version of foreshadowing. That means sort of signaling something that's going to be coming up soon. Four flights up. The stairs ended under a green trap door. I pulled the cord. The door swung down and a wooden ladder clattered into place. The warm air from above smelled like mildew and rotten wood and something else. A smell I remembered from biology class? Reptiles. The smell of snakes. I held my breath and climbed. The attic was filled with Greek hero junk. Armor stands covered in cobwebs, once bright shields pitted with rust, old leather steamer trunks plastered with stickers saying Ithaca, Circe's Isle, and Land of the Amazons. One long table was stacked with glass jars full of pickled things, severed hairy claws, huge yellow eyes, various other parts of monsters. A dusty-mounted trophy on the wall that looked like a giant snake's head, but with horns and a full set of shark's teeth. The plaque read, Hydra Head Number 1, Woodstock, New York, 1969. By the window, sitting on a wooden tripod stool, was the most gruesome memento of all. A mummy. Not the wrapped-in-cloth kind, but a female human body shriveled to a husk. She wore a tie-dyed sundress, lots of beaded necklaces, and a headband over long black hair. The skin of her face was thin and leathery over her skull, and her eyes were glassy white slits, as if the real eyes had been replaced by marbles. She'd been dead a long, long time. Looking at her sent chills up my back. And that was before she sat up in her stool and opened her mouth. A green mist poured from the mummy's mouth, coiling over the floor in thick tendrils, hissing like 20,000 snakes. I stumbled over myself trying to get to the trapdoor, but it slammed shut. Inside my head, I heard a voice. A voice slithering into one ear and coiling around my brain. I am... The spirit of Delphi, speaker of the prophecies of Phoebus Apollo, slayer of the mighty Python, approach, seeker, and I wanted to say, uh, no thanks, wrong door, just looking for the bathroom. 
but I forced myself to take a deep breath. The mummy wasn't alive. She was some kind of gruesome receptacle for something else. The power that was now swirling around me in the green mist. But its presence didn't feel evil, like my demonic math teacher Mrs. Dodds or the Minotaur. It, it felt more like the three fates I'd seen, knitting the yarn outside the highway fruit stand. Ancient, powerful, and definitely not human. But not particularly interested in killing me, either. I got up the courage to ask, What is my destiny? The mist swirled more thickly, collecting right in front of me and around the table with the pickled monster part jars. Suddenly, there were four men sitting around the table, playing cards. Their faces became clearer. It was smelly Gabe and his buddies. My fists clenched, though I knew this poker party couldn't be real. It was an illusion made out of the mist. Gabe turned toward me and spoke in the rasping voice of the oracle. Buddy on the right looked up and said in the same voice, You shall find what was stolen and see it safely returned. The guy on the left threw in two poker chips and then said, Finally, Eddie, our building super, delivered the worst line of all. And you shall fail to save what matters most in the end. The figures began to dissolve. At first I was too stunned to say anything, but as the mist retreated, coiling into a huge green serpent and slithering back into the mouth of the mummy, I cried, Wait, what, what do you mean? What friend? What will I fail to save? The tail of the mist snake disappeared into the mummy's mouth. She reclined back against the wall, her mouth closed tight as if it hadn't been opened in a hundred years. The attic was silent again. Abandoned nothing but a room full of mementos. I got the feeling I could stand here until I had cobwebs too, and then I wouldn't learn anything else. My audience with the Oracle was over. Well? Chiron asked me. I slumped into a chair at the pinochle table. She said I would have to retrieve what was stolen... Grover sat forward, chewing excitedly on the remains of a Diet Coke can. That's great. What do the Oracle say exactly? Chiron pressed. This is important. My ears were still tingling from the reptilian voice. She... She said I would have to go west and face a god who had turned. 
I would retrieve what was stolen and see it safely returned. I knew it, Grover said. Chiron didn't look satisfied. Hmm. Anything else? I didn't want to tell him. What friend would betray me? I didn't have that many. And the last line, I would fail to save what mattered most. What kind of oracle would send you on a quest and tell you, Oh, by the way, you'll fail. How could I confess that? Uh, no, that's about it. He studied my face. Very well, Percy. But know this. The oracle's words often have double meanings. Don't dwell on them too much. The truth is not always clear until events come to pass. I got the feeling he knew I was holding something bad. And he was trying to make me feel better. Okay, I said, anxious to change topics. So, where do I go? Who, who is this god in the West? Think, Percy, Chiron said. If Zeus and Poseidon weaken each other in a war, who stands to gain? Somebody else who wants to take over, I guessed. Yes, quite. Someone who harbors a grudge, who has been unhappy with his lot since the world was divided eons ago, whose kingdom would grow powerful with the deaths of millions. Someone who hates his brothers for forcing him into an oath to have no more children. An oath that both of them have now broken. I thought about my dreams the evil voice that had spoken from under the ground. Hades. Chiron nodded. The Lord of the Dead is the only possibility. A scrap of aluminum dribbled out of Grover's mouth. Whoa, whoa, wait, what, what? A fury came after Percy, Chiron reminded him. She watched the young man until he, she was sure of his identity, then she tried to kill him. Furies obey only one lord. Hades. Yes, but, 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 Hades hates all heroes, Grover protested, especially if he's found out that Percy is a son of Poseidon. A hellhound got into the forest, Chiron continued. This can only be summoned from the fields of punishment, and it had to be summoned by someone within the camp. Hades must have a spy here. He must suspect Poseidon would try to use Percy to clear his name. Hades would very much like to kill this young half-blood before he can take on the quest. Great, I muttered. So there's two major gods who want to kill me. But a, 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 a quest to... Grover swallowed. I, I, I mean, uh, couldn't the Master Bolt be in some place like Maine? Maine's very nice this time of year. Hades sent a minion to steal the Master Bolt, Chiron insisted. He hid it in the underworld, knowing full well that Zeus would blame Poseidon. I don't pretend to understand the Lord of the Dead's motives perfectly, or why he chose this time to start a war. But one thing is certain— Percy must go to the underworld, find the Master Bolts, and reveal the truth.
A strange fire burned in my stomach. The weirdest thing was, it wasn't fear. It was anticipation, the desire for revenge. Hades had tried to kill me three times so far, with the Fury, the Minotaur, and the Hellhound. It was his fault my mother disappeared in a flash of light. Now, he was trying to frame me and my dad for a theft we hadn't committed. I was ready to take him on. Besides, if my mother was in the underworld... Oh boy, said the small part of my brain that was still sane. You're a kid. Hades is a god. Grover was trembling. He'd started eating pinochle cards like potato chips. The poor guy needed to complete a quest with me so he could get his searcher's license, whatever that was. But how could I ask him to do this quest? Especially when the oracle said I was destined to fail. This was suicide. Look, if we know that it's Hades, I told Chiron, why can't we just tell the other gods? Zeus or Poseidon could go down to the underworld and bust some heads. Suspecting and knowing are not the same, Chiron said. Besides, even if the other gods suspect Hades, and I imagine Poseidon does, they couldn't retrieve the bolt themselves. Gods cannot cross each other's territories except by invitation. That is another ancient rule. Heroes, on the other hand, have certain privileges. They can go anywhere, challenge anyone as long as they're bold enough and strong enough to do it. No god can be held responsible for a hero's actions. Why do you think the gods always operate through humans? You're saying that I'm being used. I'm saying it's no accident Poseidon has claimed you now. It is a very risky gamble, but he's in a desperate situation. He needs you. My dad needs me. Emotions rolled around inside of me like bits of glass in a kaleidoscope. I didn't know whether to feel resentful or grateful or happy or angry. Poseidon had ignored me for twelve years. Now suddenly he needed me. I looked at Chiron. You've known I was Poseidon's son all along, haven't you? I had my suspicions. As I said, I have spoken to the Oracle, too. I got the feeling there was a lot he wasn't telling me about his prophecy, but I decided I couldn't worry about that right now. After all, I was holding back information, too. Okay, alright, so let me get this straight, I said. I'm supposed to go to the underworld, confront the Lord of the Dead. Check, Chiron said. Find the most powerful weapon in the universe... Check. And get it back to Olympus before the summer solstice, in ten days. That's uh, about right. I looked at Grover, who was gulping down the Ace of Hearts. Did I mention that Maine is very nice this time of year? He asked weakly. You don't have to go, I told him. I can't ask that of you. Oh, he shifted his hooves. No, it's, it's just that satyrs and underground places, well... He took a deep breath, and then stood, 
brushing the shredded cards and aluminum bits off of his t-shirt. Ooh. You saved my life, Percy. If... If you're serious about wanting me along, I won't let you down. I felt so relieved I wanted to cry, though I didn't think that would be very heroic. Grover was the only friend I'd ever had longer than a few months. I wasn't sure what good a satyr could do against the forces of the dead, but I felt better knowing that he'd be with me. All the way, G-Man. I turned to Chiron. So, where do we go? The oracle just said go west. The entrance to the underworld is always in the west. It moves from age to age, just like Olympus. Right now, of course, it's in America. Where? Chiron looks surprised. I thought that would be obvious enough. The entrance to the underworld is in Los Angeles. Oh, I said. Naturally. So we just get on a plane? No! Grover shrieked. Percy, what are you thinking? Have you ever been on a plane in your life? I shook my head, feeling embarrassed. My mom had never taken me anywhere by plane. She'd always said we didn't have the money. Besides, her parents had died in a plane crash. Percy, think, Chiron said. You are the son of the sea god. Your father's bitterest rival is Zeus, lord of the sky. Your mother knew better than to trust you in an airplane. You would be in Zeus's domain. You would never come down alive again. Overhead, lightning crackled. Thunder boomed. Okay. Okay, I said, determined not to look at the storm. So I'll, I'll travel overland. That's right, Chiron said. Two companions may accompany you. Grover is one. The other has already volunteered. If you will accept her help. <laughs> Gee, I said, feigning surprise. Who else would be stupid enough to volunteer for a quest like this? The air shimmered behind Chiron. Annabeth became visible, stuffing her Yankees cap into her back pocket. I've been waiting a long time for a quest, Seaweed Brain, she said. Athena's no fan of Poseidon, but if you're going to save the world, I'm the best person to keep you from messing up. Yeah, if you do say so yourself, I said. I suppose you got a plan, wise girl? Her cheeks colored. Do you want my help or not? <laughs> the truth was, I did. I needed all the help I could get. Okay. A trio, I said. That'll work. Excellent, Chiron said. This afternoon we can take you down as far as the bus terminal in Manhattan. After that, you are on your own. Lightning flashed. Rain poured down in the meadows that were never supposed to have violent weather. No time to waste, Chiron said. I think you should all get packing. There it is.
And that is the end of our first chapter for the evening. I think that was a great chapter. Yeah, Missy, I'm feeling good about it. Vansays Live says, sound effects and voice mods are adding quite a bit to these readings. I am so excited that y'all are feeling good about those. I am super excited to be using them. Um, I'm using a... Uh, a voice changer program that also has some sort of hotkey kind of soundboard uh, possibilities to it. I want to continue to build out the soundboard. I don't want it to just be the thunder. I want to bring more and more to it over time. We've tried to do this once before with sound effects and music, and I think the music went over poorly. Uh, I think most of that was just because I had it turned up way, way too loud. I think just a little bit underneath, just like barely audible, might work. But we're gonna. I want to start with the sound effects. I need to build up a nice sort of pad of sound effects and then sort of you know get used to using them um that is that's a tough prospect and so i'm trying not to sort of bite off too much at once but this voice mod thing is something i'm committed to uh, i'm hoping you're starting to sort of well we'll see I, I would like to see if you are sort of picking up like when exactly does sam use the the sound effects but yeah we'll, we'll see if y'all can guess at it um i'm really glad y'all are enjoying them i am definitely enjoying it i do think it brings quite a bit and i'm really thankful to uh some of the folks who have really contributed to my ability to do this like this uh, tuna got me this sweet keyboard it's this little uh keypad that i can program for things that is uh becoming my soundboard uh and then mama cass got me this gaming mouse which you can program the buttons for and can i say like to anyone who who streams or any like uh really anyone who edits anything edits video what have you get one of these mouse one of these mice mouses it is like crazy useful to be able to program buttons in for different things uh, i do almost all my editing with basically one hand now not having to like fiddle around with you know the different key combinations for things on the keyboard and just having one button that does my little snip and does clear and something something like that meese yeah meese exactly thank you <laughs> yeah them get one of these get one of these gaming mameses get one of these things if you do anything that requires you to like have a few commands that you constantly need to use. Everyone, how are we feeling about today's chapter? Uh, for anyone who's joining us late, my name is Sam. This is Sidecar Stories. Tonight is Thursday, which of course means that this is Flying Sidecar, the show where uh, this is a voice actor's venture through some stories that we all love. Um, and we're going to be reading a second chapter tonight. For those of you who don't know, our custom is as follows. We're reading this, of course, and then I'm going to take a quick break here. But before I do that, I'm going to leave you with another chatter break question. We've learned a ton, y'all. Um, we know we're headed to Los Angeles. That's 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 Sidecar Sam's neck of the woods. I live I live kind of in that area. I live in Southern California. Uh, Sloth Creatures is talking about the hat that makes uh, Annabeth invisible. Yeah, I think you know we've talked quite a bit about Percy. Let's talk about some of our supporting characters. Let's talk about some of our other characters here, Annabeth and Grover specifically, right? And even to a degree, Chiron, right? They are all experiencing kind of a, a strange phenomena where their destiny, right? This, this thing that they are destined to do, their big headline for what will be coming in their future, it hinges on somebody else. We don't know precisely what Chiron's is. We know Chiron is holding something back. Um, we don't know, we, we, we know, I would say, a little bit more about Annabeth's. She intends to go on a quest. That is what she's going to do. It is her destiny to go on a quest of some sort. Uh, and then we know, I think, substantially sort of uh, we know the most i think about grover right these supporting characters and the ways that they are really fulfilling that role of supporting character here they are they are beholden to somebody else to complete their destinies what are they feeling right now 
as they as they rely on Percy, what what's what's going through their minds as we as we start to sort of like open up? I think we're we're really we've got a solid foundation for understanding who Percy is. I want to start to understand Annabeth and Chiron and Grover. Um, so there's our there's our chatterbreak question, and I know sometimes I sort of like ramble on. So let me give it to you. One clean take for our chatterbreak question. Our chatterbreak question is: our supporting characters. Chiron, Annabeth, and Grover. How are they feeling about Percy right now? What's going through their minds about being tied to Percy as part of their destiny? There we go. Everyone, I'll see you in five minutes. Bye-bye! Everyone, welcome back. So, we're talking about Chiron. Even more so, Annabeth, and even more than that, Grover, some of our supporting characters. As we start to try and understand who they are, like we're trying to understand who Percy is, how do we think they're feeling? What's going through their minds about Percy and the things that he is, you know, uh, destined to do and how their destinies are kind of tied up with his? That's what we're going to be talking about. Uh, I do just want to say hello to everyone. Uh, how's it going over in Discord? MMP has got some solid stuff to say over there. I'm going to get to that in just a second. Thank you so much for joining us tonight and for joining in for the discussion portion. This is, I think, one of my favorite parts of doing this. And if you enjoy this, if you like discussing this and you really want to try and like get deeper under the hood of some of these things, I would say Tuesdays might be your best bet. We do a really deep dive. Um, I read through the chapter as usual, and then we spend like about an hour just talking about the chapter and the things that we've learned and and really starting to understand the characters a lot better. You know, if you've ever read The Hobbit, fantastic. And you, I think you, you all should read to enjoy, but also... You can read to understand them better and get even more enjoyment out of them. I'm really enjoying learning about Bilbo Baggins, the central character of The Hobbit, and how much of that book is about the conflict within himself about things that are part of his identity versus things that he thinks are part of his identity. So come hang out on Tuesdays if you want to see it. Um, and if you would like to know more about it, you can find the, the YouTube playlist right here. The link has just popped up in chat. Okay, now... Let's talk about our Chatterbreak question. Let's start with one quick thing from MMP so that I don't forget it over in Discord. MMP says, Grover and Annabeth seem nice, but if Grover and Annabeth are going on the quest, then doesn't that make one of them uh, the friend that the prophecy says will betray Percy? Meaning that their thoughts about Percy may be less honest than they seem. They both do seem pretty kind, right? They, they seem, at the very least, well, maybe not nice, but uh, at the very least, got decent intentions, right? Um, even if some of them are, are a little bit self-serving, right? They, they're sort of working toward mutual benefit, right? They're, they're going to help Percy, but, you know, it's, it's in, in the pursuit of something that they need for themselves as well. Um, I think that is, I think that's an interesting thought. And, you know, it is a, frankly, kind of a dark one. This is going to be hard for Percy. I know it will be hard for me going into this big, you know, going into some big project knowing like, hey, uh, one of the people that you've decided to trust here uh, is going to betray you. That's a lot to, to rest on your shoulders. Emmy Lou says, I do like that Reardon has used the supporting characters in their own way. Them having this quest as well as, uh, as well, rather than someone saying, hey, go along with Percy and make sure he succeeds. It's much different that, uh, than Harry Potter and the supporting characters always just blindly trusting Harry and what he needs to do. Percy Jackson definitely focuses on everyone's growth and struggles rather than just the protagonist. And that just makes us root for success rather than expect it. Yeah, that is such a strange uh, kind of 
uh, balance, right? Because we've talked about how much more this this book is, at least the, the perspective of it, is rooted in Percy Jackson's own experience. Whereas Harry Potter, like, we got some some more kind of objective looks at scenes and such. Um, with this one, like, you know, we talked about right down to the chapter titles. They're all very much through Percy's eyes and through through the 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 filter of Percy's kind of own emotions about things. And yet, I would say you're correct. Now, we we got some great development, of course, from some of the supporting characters in Harry Potter as well. But you're absolutely correct. The supporting characters here in Percy Jackson have their own destinies to fulfill. They've got their own, you know. Some of them have prophecies surrounding them, um, etc. But yeah, they've got their they've got their own special mission to succeed on. Van Saves Lies says Grover is probably the inverse of Annabeth. He should be happy um, about the last chance to prove himself, but he can't be stoked with this quest being such a dangerous one. Yeah, we know that Grover, and I think. You know, per perhaps he should be happy, but I also think there's probably that lingering sensation of, I messed this up once before, and if I mess this one up, like, I, I, he, he must have been hoping for something easier, right? Something, something where he's like, okay, I've been, I've been working hard, I've been trying to overcome the last time that I failed, but, boy, this is a tough one to try and, like, make your last shot, you know, imagine, you know, taking a test and your teacher lets you retake it a couple of times and says, okay, this is the last time, but I made it like four times harder. Tough. Very tough. Sandra says, I think Annabelle, uh, Annabeth has her bag already packed and is prepared for it, like how Hermione is uh, is prepared in Deathly Hallows. Yeah, we definitely have this sense that, uh, considering who her mother is, uh, we, we heard it in the, the, the Capture the Flag chapter, always has a plan. Always has a plan. Yeah, I think I think we can definitely draw some parallels here between parts of Annabeth and, uh, you know, parts of Hermione. Um, let's see. JCA says, uh, yes, Annabeth has been waiting a long time to get some action. This is the first real thing, right? So it makes sense she would jump on board to further her own glory and her mother's to make her mother proud. It certainly seems that there is something about that relationship, Right. And I think we're picking this up about quite a few characters, not just not just her, but Percy, obviously, and then maybe some from Luke as well. Luke, I think, has, ex has stated it the most explicitly that you know sometimes, uh, I guess no, I guess Annabeth does does say, state it pretty explicitly as well. But basically, sometimes parents, gods as parents, aren't great. They're not good parents in a lot of cases, and this need to kind of prove yourself to 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 get some attention, right? Um, this this thing that wells up inside Percy of having this this father who, uh, you know, now we know that he didn't drown at sea. The alternative is he kind of abandoned Percy for 12 years. And now, hey, I need you to do something for me. Uh, do me a quick favor. And what does Percy feel? He feels kind of pride that his father needs him. There's there's a definite dynamic between these demigods and their parents. Keep an eye on that. Now, Chiron is a bit of a different issue, and JCA says, Chiron probably gets that nervous hope-slash-excitement with a hint of dread at the possibility of failure for each hero that he sends out. Yeah, I think with some of these, like, let's keep in mind some some personal history, right? Uh, Annabeth being sort of pent up in Camp Half-Blood. That's part of her history. That's part of where she is setting off on this quest from. So she's got to be just, like, chomping at the bit, ready to go. And then there's Grover, who's kind of on his last chance here. And that sense of that that sense of kind of a little bit of desperation, watch how that manifests. And then finally for Chiron, what's part of his history? Part of his history is 
training heroes and then sending them off into the world. And as we've seen already, a lot of times this does not end well for heroes. But this is Chiron's lot in life. This is the life that he has been uh, sort of given, uh, is, is one of training heroes and then having to watch them go out into the world. And, and how do they turn out? How do they fare? Are they safe? That would be a lot of weight to have on someone. How do you not become a little bit like Mr. D in that case? Not, not where you hate the camp actively, but, you know, it's got to be hard to try and continue to get connected with heroes when you know you're going to have to send them out into a very dangerous world. It's tough. I think we've had a good little talk here. I want to get into some of our, our review as well. Luke says, Annabeth certainly gives off a vibe of having a lot to prove. I'll say she's a lot more interesting character than Percy to me. Yeah, there's, there's something about, uh, I would say, ambition for me that really, really resonates as well. But uh, y'all, oh baby, there's just so much popping up in chat. And I'm really thankful that we've got all these people here. But at the same time, like it's, it's tough to keep up with chat. It's a good problem to have. Emmy Lou brings up a good point. With literature and characters, you always want to look at their values. Uh, those uh, those have to be challenged for growth to create dynamic characters. So that always helps predict what problems coming up, uh, what problems come up, and how they will fulfill their goals. Yeah, this is kind of a this is kind of a um, a literary look at this, right? Like a, a look at how how characters are functional within the story. Um, I always really enjoy looking at characters as kind of an insight into life, um, into into real life, and, and try to sort of bring that out. This is another a part of storytelling, and. I, I think, you know, some folks would agree with me, other folks haven't really thought about it necessarily, and some folks would definitely disagree with me, but I believe that storytelling, as one of the oldest, oldest things that sort of makes humans special, if we are special for any reason, I think it's our ability to tell stories, our ability to relate experience to other people, whether it is true or fictional, and to... to take in that related experience and be able to understand things without being forced to experience them ourselves. We can experience through other through these characters, through stories, incredible loss and, uh, you know, uh, reacting to great ambition and, and desperation and anger and sadness and joy and, and really learn a lot about these things and about life by means of storytelling. It's, it's the difference between having to get burned to know about fire and being able to be told, hey, fire's hot, don't touch it. This has been wonderful. I'm feeling great about this discussion. Let's go into our review for our next chapter, shall we? It, it's going to be a long night, everybody. Uh, our next chapter is shorter than the first one, but big night. So our review of our previous chapter. Basically, uh, Percy has just been claimed. Uh, he has a long discussion with Chiron about what the future holds. And Chiron says, basically, I've got a mission. Can't tell you what it is or where it is. You have to just say yes or no. Kind of, right? Um, over time, as Percy says, I guess, I guess I'll do it. I don't know what else I would do. Um, uh, over time, through this conversation, Chiron expresses that the mission is essentially, you have to go and retrieve the, thanks Cass, sorry. I shut Blue Boy out of the room. He must have been so, so sad. Percy has to go on this mission um, to retrieve the lightning bolt. Not a lightning bolt. This is the lightning bolt, okay? This is Zeus's, like, god weapon, his super powerful symbol, uh, and someone has stolen it. It's gone. Now, he suspects Poseidon, because they had just had an argument prior to this. Um, but of course, gods can't directly act against one another like this. So it must have been a hero, right? It must have been a hero uh, or a, a demigod, something like 
someone like Percy, and the timing is suspicious for Zeus. His lightning bolt goes missing, and suddenly Poseidon claims this son that he had never claimed before. Why? It's got to look suspicious to Zeus. Well, Percy has to clear Poseidon's name here um, by heading to where Chiron believes the lightning bolt to be. He really believes it's the only place it could be. Down in the underworld with Hades. He believes that Hades is the person who stands to gain from this whole prospect of, of, you know, the gods fighting, especially Zeus and Poseidon, two of the big three. He's got to be ticked off at them, and he stands to gain from, you know, big wars happening like would happen if Zeus and Poseidon go to war over this issue, as it seems like they might in, let's see, how much time do we have? Oh, 10 days? Cool! We've got 10 days before this big thing, uh, summer solstice. That is when Zeus expects his lightning bolt to be back in his hands, and Poseidon expects an apology from Zeus. Now, these are both very proud gods. Seems like diplomacy isn't going to work, so somebody's going to have to go get this thing. Well, in order to learn a little bit more about his mission, Percy heads up to the attic of the big house here at Camp Half-Blood. The big house, uh, it's got this attic, it's full of old hero stuff, like hydra heads, old, you know, pickled monster parts, etc., and a mummy. And this mummy is the spirit of the Oracle of Delphi. And the Oracle, and when you hear Oracle, you can all think... It's telling the future in some way, right? It's going to give some sort of prophecy. Uh, that is true of the big O oracle like we've seen here, but oracle, you might find that word in your daily lives at some point. The oracle says a couple of very confusing things, including roughly where he needs to go. Uh, that sort of gives him his hint as to, you know, needing to head to the underworld. But she also says a particularly disturbing thing. Uh, and Luke, thank you so much. I was going to have to go back and find it. It was not going to be easy to find. Luke has put the actual text in. You shall go west and face the god who has turned. You shall find what was stolen and see it safely returned. You shall be betrayed by one who calls you a friend. And you shall fail to save what matters most in the end. Can I go ahead and mention to y'all really quick that I did not identify that as a rhyme scheme until I just read it right now. I was so distracted by the, like illusory poker game happening anyway thank you luke i appreciate it a bunch luke see those teacher instincts thank you luke this is the prophecy and i think you can hear i don't think i need to go into any further depth you can hear some of the problems in that huh now i think that is quite sufficient percy accepts the quest and uh he will be accompanied by annabeth and grover that's where we're at that's where we're headed and i hope you will enjoy Chapter 10. I ruin a perfectly good bus. It didn't take me long to pack. I decided to leave the Minotaur horn in my cabin, which left me only an extra change of clothes and a toothbrush to stuff in a backpack Grover had found for me. The camp store loaned me a hundred dollars in mortal money and twenty golden drachmas. These coins were as big as Girl Scout cookies and had images of various Greek gods stamped on one side and the Empire State Building on the other. The ancient mortal drachmas had been silver, Chiron told us, but Olympians never used less than pure gold. Chiron had said the coins might come in handy for non-mortal transactions, whatever that meant. He gave Annabeth and me each a canteen of nectar and a Ziploc bag full of ambrosia squares, only to be used in emergencies if we were seriously hurt. It was god food, Chiron reminded us. It would cure us of almost any injury, but it was lethal to mortals. 
Too much of it would make a half-blood very, very feverish. An overdose would burn us up. Literally. Annabeth was bringing her magic Yankee cap, which she told me had been a 12th birthday present from her mom. She carried a book on famous classical literature, written in ancient Greek, to read when she got bored, and a long bronze knife, hidden in her shirt sleeve. I was sure the knife would get us busted the first time we went through a metal detector. Grover wore his fake feet and his pants to pass as human. He wore a green Rasta-style cap, because when it rained, his curly hair flattened and you could see just the tips of his horns. His bright orange backpack was full of scrap metal and apples to snack on. In his pocket was a set of reed pipes his daddy goat had carved for him, even though he only knew two songs, Mozart's Piano Concerto Number no. 12 and Hilary Duff's So Yesterday, both of which sounded pretty bad on reed pipes. We waved goodbye to the other campers, took one last look at the strawberry fields, the ocean, and the big house, and then hiked up Half-Blood Hill to the tall pine tree that used to be Talia, daughter of Zeus. Chiron was waiting for us in his wheelchair. Next to him stood the surfer dude that I'd seen when I was covering in the sick room. According to Grover, the guy was the camp's head of security. He supposedly had eyes all over his body, so he could never be surprised. Today, though, he was wearing a chauffeur's uniform, so I could see only the extra peepers on his hands, face, and neck. This is Argus, Chiron told me. He will drive you into the city and, well, keep an eye on things. I heard footsteps behind us. Luke came running up the hill, carrying a pair of basketball shoes. Hey! He panted. Hey, I'm glad I caught you. Annabeth blushed the way that she always did when Luke was around. I just wanted to say good luck, Luke told me. And I thought, you know, maybe uh, you could use these. He handed me the sneakers, which looked pretty normal. They even smelled kind of normal. Luke said, my yeah. White bird's wings sprouted out of the heels, startling me so much I dropped them. The shoes flapped around on the ground until the wings folded up and disappeared. <gasps> awesome, Grover said. Luke smiled. Those served me well when I was on my quest. Gift from Dad. Of course, I, I don't use them much these days. His expression turned sad. I didn't know what to say. It was cool enough that Luke had come to say goodbye. I'd been afraid he might resent me for getting so much attention in the last few days, but here he was, giving me a magic gift. It made me blush almost as much as Annabeth. Hey, man, I said. Thanks. Listen, uh, Percy. Luke looked uncomfortable. Hey, you got a lot of hopes riding on you, so just... Kill some monsters for me, okay? We shook hands. Luke patted Grover's head between his horns and gave a goodbye hug to Annabeth, who looked like she might pass out. After Luke was gone, I told her, Are uh, you hyperventilating? I'm not. You let him capture the flag instead of you, didn't you? Why would I want to go anywhere with you, Percy? She stomped down the other side of the hill, where a white SUV waited on the shoulder of the road. 
Argus followed, jingling his car keys. I picked up the flying shoes and had a sudden bad feeling. I looked at Chiron. I won't be able to use these, will I? He shook his head. Luke meant well, Percy, but taken to the air, that would not be wise for you. I nodded, disappointed, but then I got an idea. Hey, Grover, you want a magic item? His eyes lit up. Me? Pretty soon we'd laced the sneakers over his fake feet, and the world's first flying goat boy was ready for launch. My ya! he shouted. He got off the ground okay, but then fell over sideways, so his backpack dragged along the grass. The winged shoes kept bucking up and down like tiny broncos. Practice, Chiron called after him. You just need practice. <laughs> Grover went flying sideways down the hill like a possessed lawnmower, heading toward the van. Before I could follow, Chiron caught my arm. I, 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 I should have trained you better, Percy, he said. If only I had more time. Hercules, Jason, they all got more training. That's okay. I just wish... I stopped myself because I was about to sound like a brat. I was wishing my dad had given me some cool magic item to help on the quest. Something as good as Luke's flying shoes or Annabeth's invisible cap. Oh, what am I thinking? Chiron cried. I can't let you get away without this. He pulled a pen from his coat pocket and handed it to me. It was an ordinary, disposable, ballpoint, black ink, removable cap pen. Probably cost 30 cents. Yeah, gee, I said. Thanks. Percy, that is a gift from your father. I've kept it for years, not knowing you were who I was waiting for, but the prophecy is clear to me now. You are the one. I remembered the field trip to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, when I'd vaporized Mrs. Dodds. Chiron had thrown me a pen that turned into a sword. Could this be... I took off the cap, and the pen grew longer and heavier in my hand. In half a second, I held a shimmering bronze sword with a double-edged blade, a leather-wrapped grip, and a flat hilt riveted with gold studs. It was the first weapon that actually felt balanced in my hand. The sword has a long and tragic history that we need not go into, Chiron told me. Its name is Anacrusmos. Riptide, I translated, surprised that ancient Greek came so easily. Use it only for emergencies, Chiron said. And only against monsters. No hero should harm mortals unless absolutely necessary, of course. But this sword wouldn't harm them in any case. I looked at the wickedly sharp blade. What do you mean it wouldn't harm mortals? How could it not? The sword is celestial bronze. Forged by the Cyclopes, tempered in the heart of Mount Etna... Cooled the river lathe. It's deadly to monsters, to any, any creature from the underworld, provided that they don't kill you first. But the blade will pass through mortals like an illusion. 
They are simply not important enough for the blade to kill. And I should warn you, as a demigod, you can be killed by either celestial or normal weapons. You are twice as vulnerable. Good to know. Now, recap the pen. I touched the pen cap to the sword tip, and instantly, Riptide shrank back to a ballpoint pen once more. I tucked it in my pocket, a little nervous, because I was famous for losing pens at school. You can't, Chiron said. Can't what? Lose the pen, he said. It is enchanted. It will always reappear in your pocket. Try it. I was wary, but I threw the pen as far as I could down the hill and watched it disappear in the grass. It may take a few moments, Chiron told me. Now, check your pocket. And sure enough, the pen was there. Okay, that is extremely cool, I admitted. But what if a mortal sees me pulling out a sword? Chiron smiled. Mist is a powerful thing, Percy. Mist? Yes, read the Iliad. It's full of references to the stuff. Whenever divine or monstrous elements mix with the mortal world, they generate a mist, which obscures the vision of humans. You will see things just as they are, being a half-blood, but humans will interpret things quite differently. Remarkable, really, the lengths to which humans will go to fit things into their version of reality. I put Riptide back in my pocket. For the first time, the quest felt real. I was actually leaving Camp Half-Blood. I was heading west with no adult supervision, no backup plan, not even a cell phone. Chiron had said cell phones were traceable by monsters. If we used one, it would be worse than setting up a signal flare. I had no weapons stronger than a sword to fight off monsters and reach the land of the dead. Chiron, I said, when you say the gods are immortal, I mean, there was a time before them, right? Four ages before them, actually. The time of the Titans was the Fourth Age, sometimes called the Golden Age, which is definitely a misnomer. This, the time of Western civilization, the rule of Zeus, is called the Fifth Age. So, what was it like before the gods? Chiron pursed his lips. Even I am not old enough to remember that, child. But I know... It was a time of darkness and savagery for mortals. Cronus, lord of the Titans, called his reign the Golden Age because men lived innocent and free of all knowledge. But that was mere propaganda. The Titan King cared nothing for your kind except as appetizers or a source of cheap entertainment. It was only in the early reign of Lord Zeus when Prometheus, the good Titan, brought fire to mankind that your species began to progress. And even then Prometheus was branded a radical thinker. Zeus punished him very severely, as you may recall. Of course, eventually, the gods warmed to humans and Western civilization was born. But the gods can't die now, right? I mean, as long as Western civilization is alive, they're alive. So even if I failed, nothing could happen so bad that it would mess up everything, right? Chiron gave me a melancholy smile. 
No one knows how long the age of the West will last, Percy. The gods are immortal, yes, but then so were the Titans. They still exist, locked away in their various prisons, forced to endure endless pain and punishment, reduced in power, but still very much alive. May the fates forbid that the gods should ever suffer such a doom, or that we should ever return to the darkness and chaos of the past. All that we can do, child, is follow our destiny. Our destiny. Assuming that we know what that is. Relax, Chiron told me. Keep a clear head, and remember, you may be about to prevent the biggest war in human history. Yeah, relaxed, I said. Yeah, I'm very relaxed. When I got to the bottom of the hill, I looked back. Under the pine tree that used to be Talia, daughter of Zeus, Chiron was now standing in full horseman form, holding his bow high in salute. Just your typical summer camp send-off by your typical centaur. Okay, chatter break. So, so fast. Percy's got a mission, right? He has got a, oh boy, a tough one. A tough putt ahead of him. Percy, he's got a sword. Uh, Grover has got these flying shoes as a gift to Percy from Luke, but of course Percy can't use them because he he shouldn't spend any time in the sky. That's kind of that's kind of Zeus's whole spot. And of course Annabeth has got her invisibility cap, and it's feeling very sort of golden trio, right? This is kind of a, a common element of this genre. I would like to hear from y'all. How do you think each one of these folks is going to shine? On the coming mission. We don't know what they're going to come up against, so it's a little difficult, I recognize, but how do we think each one of our three is going to shine as we head out on this quest? Alright, let's keep it up. Argus drove us out of the countryside and into western Long Island. It felt weird to be on a highway again. Annabeth and Grover sitting next to me as if we were normal carpoolers. After two weeks at Half-Blood Hill, the real world seemed like a fantasy. I found myself staring at every McDonald's, every kid in the back of their parents' car, every billboard and shopping mall. So far, so good, I told Annabeth. Ten miles and not a single monster. She gave me an irritated look. It's bad luck to talk that way. Seaweed brain. Okay, could you remind me again? Why do you hate me so much? I don't hate you. Well, you could have fooled me. She folded her cap of invisibility. Look, we're just... We're not supposed to get along, okay? Our parents are rivals. But why? She sighed. How many reasons do you want? One time my mom caught Poseidon with his girlfriend in Athena's temple, which is hugely disrespectful. Another time Athena and Poseidon competed to be the patron god for the city of Athens. Your dad created some stupid saltwater spring as his gift. My mom created the olive tree. The people saw that her gift was better, so they named the city after her. They must really like olives. Oh, forget it. 
Now, if she'd invented pizza, now that I could understand. I said, forget it. In the front seat, Argus smiled. He didn't say anything, but one blue eye on the back of his neck winked at me. Traffic slowed us down in Queens. By the time we got to Manhattan, it was sunset and starting to rain. Argus dropped us off at the Greyhound station on the Upper East Side, not far from my mom and Gabe's apartment. Taped to a mailbox was a soggy flyer with my picture on it. Have you seen this boy? It's in all caps. I don't know what to do. I ripped it down before Annabeth and Grover could notice. Argus unloaded our bags and made sure we got our bus tickets and then drove away, the eye on the back of his hand opening to watch us as he pulled out of the parking lot. I thought about how close I was to my old apartment. On a normal day, my mom would be home from the candy store by now. Smelly Gabe was probably up there right now, playing poker, not even missing her. Grover shouldered his backpack. He gazed down the street in the direction I was looking. You want to know why she married him, Percy? I stared at him. Were you reading my mind or something? Just your emotions, he shrugged. I guess I forgot to tell you that Satis can do that. You were thinking about your mom and your stepdad, right? I nodded, wondering what else Grover might have forgotten to tell me. Your mom married Gabe for you, Grover told me. You call him smelly, but you've got no idea. This guy has this aura. Yuck, I I can smell it from here. You can smell traces of him on you, and you haven't been near him for a week. Thanks, I said. Where's the nearest shower? You should be grateful, Percy. Your stepfather smells so repulsively human that he could mask the presence of any demigod. As soon as I took a whiff inside his Camaro, I knew Gabe has been covering your scent for years. If you hadn't lived with him every summer, you probably would have been found by monsters a long time ago. Your mum stayed with him to protect you. She was a smart lady. She must have loved you a lot to put up with their guy. If that makes you feel any better. It didn't, but I forced myself not to show it. I'll see her again, I thought. She isn't gone. I wondered if Grover could still read my emotions, mixed up as they were. I was glad he and Annabeth were with me, but I felt guilty I hadn't been straight with them. I hadn't told them the real reason I'd said yes to this crazy quest. The truth was, I didn't care about retrieving Zeus's lightning bolt or saving the world, or even helping my father out of trouble. The more I thought about it, I resented Poseidon for never visiting me, never helping my mom, never even sending me a lousy child support check. He'd only claimed me because he needed a job done. All I cared about was my mom. Hades had taken her unfairly, and Hades was going to give her back. You will be betrayed by one who calls you a friend. The oracle's whisper was still in my mind. You will fail to save what matters the most in the end. Eh, shut up, I told it. The rain kept coming down. We got restless waiting for the bus and decided to play some hacky sack with one of Grover's apples. 
Annabeth was unbelievable. She could bounce the apple off her knee, her elbow, her shoulder, whatever. That wasn't too bad myself. The game ended when I tossed the apple toward Grover and it got too close to his mouth. In one mega goat bite, our hacky sack disappeared. Core, stem, and all. Grover blushed. He tried to apologize, but Annabeth and I were too busy cracking up. Finally, the bus came. As we stood in line to board, Grover looked around, sniffing the air like he smelled his favorite school cafeteria delicacy, enchiladas. What is it? I asked. I don't know, he said tensely. Maybe it's nothing. But I could tell it wasn't nothing. And I started looking over my shoulder, too. I was relieved when we finally got on board and found seats together in the back of the bus. We stowed our backpacks. Annabeth kept slapping her Yankee cap nervously against her thigh. As the last passengers got on, Annabeth clamped her hand onto my knee. Percy? An old lady had just boarded the bus. She wore a crumpled velvet dress, lace gloves, and a shapeless orange-knit hat that shadowed her face, and she carried a big paisley purse. When she tilted her head, her black eyes glittered, and my heart skipped a beat. It was Mrs. Dodds. Older, more withered, but definitely the same evil face. I scrunched down in my seat. Behind her came two more old ladies, one in a green hat, one in a purple hat. Otherwise, they looked exactly like Mrs. Dodds. Same gnarled hands, paisley handbags, wrinkled velvet dresses, triplet demon grandmothers. They sat in the front row, right behind the driver. The two in the aisle crossed their legs over the walkway, making an X. It was casual enough, but it sent a clear message. Nobody leaves. The bus pulled out of the station, and we headed through the slick streets of Manhattan. She didn't stay dead long, I said, trying to keep my voice from quivering. I thought you said they could be dispelled for a lifetime. If you're lucky, Annabeth said, and you're obviously not. All three of them, Grover whispered. Di immortales. It's okay, Annabeth said, obviously thinking hard. Okay, the Furies. The three worst monsters from the underworld. No problem. No problem. We'll just... We'll just slip out the windows. They don't open, Grover moaned. Uh, back exit, she suggested. There wasn't one. Even if there had been, it wouldn't have helped. By that time, we were on Ninth Avenue, heading for Lincoln Tunnel. They won't attack us with witnesses around, I said. Will they? Mortals don't have good eyes, Annabeth reminded me. Their brains can only process what they see through the mist. They're going to see three old ladies killing us, aren't they? She thought about it. Hard to say, but we can't count on mortals for help. Maybe an emergency exit in the roof? We hit the Lincoln Tunnel and the bus went dark except for the running lights down the aisle. It was eerily quiet without the sound of the rain. Mrs. Dodds got up. In a flat voice, as if she'd rehearsed it, she announced to the whole bus, I need to use the restroom. 
So do I, said the second sister. So do I, said the third sister. They all started coming down the aisle. I've got it, Annabeth said. Percy, take my hat. What? You're the one that they want. Turn invisible and go up the aisle. Let them pass you. Maybe you can get to the front and get away. But you guys, there's an outside chance they might not notice us, Annabeth said. You're the son of one of the big three. Your smell might be overpowering. I, I can't just leave you. Don't worry about us, Grover said. Go! My hands trembled. I felt like a coward, but I took the Yankees cap and I put it on. When I looked down, my body wasn't there anymore. I started creeping up the aisle. I managed to get past ten rows, then duck into an empty seat just as the Furies walked past. Mrs. Dodds stopped, sniffing, and looked straight at me. My heart was pounding. Apparently, she didn't see anything. She and her sisters kept going. I was free. I made it to the front of the bus. We were almost through the Lincoln Tunnel now. I was about to press the emergency stop button when I heard hideous wailing from the back row. The old ladies were not old ladies anymore. Their faces were still the same. I guess those couldn't get any uglier, but their bodies had shriveled into leathery brown hag bodies with bat's wings and hands and feet like gargoyle claws. Their handbags had turned into fiery whips. The Furies surrounded Grover and Annabeth, lashing their whips, hissing, Where is it? Where? The other people on the bus were screaming, cowering in their seats. They saw something, all right. He's not here, Annabeth yelled. He's gone. The Furies raised their whips. Annabeth drew her bronze knife. Grover grabbed a tin can from his snack bag and prepared to throw it. What I did next was so impulsive and dangerous, I should have been named ADHD Poster Child of the Year. The bus driver was distracted, trying to see what was going on in his rearview mirror. Still invisible, I grabbed the wheel from him and jerked it to the left. Everybody howled as they were thrown to the right, and I heard what I hoped was the sound of three furies smashing against the windows. Hey! Hey! Whoa! 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 The driver yelled. We wrestled for the wheel. The bus slammed against the side of the tunnel, grinding metal, throwing sparks a mile behind us. We careened out of the Lincoln Tunnel and back into the rainstorm. People and monsters tossed around the bus, cars plowing beside us like bowling pins. Somehow, the driver found an exit. We shot off the highway through a half-dozen traffic lights and ended up barreling down one of those New Jersey rural roads where you can't believe there's so much nothing right across from New York City. There were no roads to our left, the Hudson River to our right, and the driver seemed to be veering toward the river. Another great idea. I hit the emergency brake. The bus wailed, spun a full circle on the wet asphalt, and crashed into the trees. The emergency lights came on. The door flew open. The bus driver was the first one out, the passengers yelling as they stampeded after him. I stepped into the driver's seat and let them pass. The Furies regained their balance. They lashed their whips at Annabeth while she waved her knife and yelled in ancient Greek, telling them to back off. Grover threw tin cans. I looked at the open doorway. I was free to go. 
but I couldn't leave my friends. I took off the invisible cap. Hey! The Furies turned, baring their yellow fangs at me, and the exit suddenly seemed like an excellent idea. Mrs. Dodds stalked up the aisle, just as she used to do in class, about to deliver my F math test. Every time she flicked her whip, red flames danced along the barbed leather. Her two ugly sisters hopped on top of seats on either side of her and crawled toward me like huge, nasty lizards. Perseus Jackson, Mrs. Dodd said in an accent that was definitely somewhere further south than Georgia. You have offended the gods. You shall die. I liked you better as a math teacher, I told her. She growled. Annabeth and Grover moved up behind the Furies cautiously, looking for an opening. I took the ballpoint pen out of my pocket and uncapped it. Riptide elongated into a shimmering, double-edged sword. The Furies hesitated. Mrs. Dodds had felt Riptide's blade once before. She obviously didn't like seeing it again. Submit now, she hissed. And you will not suffer eternal torment. A nice try, I told her. Percy, look out, Annabeth cried. Mrs. Dodds lashed her whip around my sword while the furies on either side lunged at me. My hand felt like it was wrapped in molten lead, but I tried not to drop Riptide. I managed to. I, I stuck the fury on the left with its hilt, sending her toppling backward into the seat. I turned and sliced the fury on the right. As soon as the blade connected with her neck, she screamed and exploded into dust. Annabeth got Mrs. Dodds in a wrestler's hold and yanked her backward while Grover ripped the whip out of her hand. Ow, 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 he yelled. Hot, hot. The fury I'd hilt slammed came at me again, talons ready, but I swung riptide and she broke open like a pinata. Mrs. Dodds was trying to get Annabeth off her back. She kicked, clawed, hissed, and bit, but Annabeth held on while Grover got Mrs. Dodds' legs tied up in her own whip. Finally, they both shoved her backward into the aisle. Mrs. Dodds tried to get up, but didn't have room to flap her bat wing, so she kept falling down. Zeus will destroy you, she promised. Hades will have your soul. Abracus meas visimini. I yelled. I wasn't sure where the Latin came from. I think it meant... Eat my pants? Thunder shook the bus. The hair rose on the back of my neck. Get out! Annabeth yelled at me. Now! I didn't need any encouragement. We rushed outside and found the other passengers wandering around in a daze. Arguing with the driver or running around in circles yelling, We're gonna die! A Hawaiian-shirted tourist with a camera snapped my photograph before I could recap my sword. Our, 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 um, our bags, Grover realized. We left our... <laughs> the windows of the bus exploded as the passengers ran for cover. Lightning shredded a huge crater in the roof, but an angry wail from inside told me Mrs. Dodds was not yet dead. Run! Annabeth said. She's calling for reinforcements. We have got to get out of here. We plunged into the woods as the rain poured down, the bus in flames behind us, and nothing but darkness ahead.
I want to say thank you very much. Climbing Arts, I believe is how it's pronounced, but Climbing Arts did this piece of art and it was found for us by Bells. Bells, thank you a ton. Uh, this Bells over in Discord. Thank you for, for getting that artist to, uh, to sign off on this because uh, obviously some fantastic art to keep an eye on here. Uh, and of course, to everyone who contributed art for today. You know what? Let's do a little bit of an art roundup. I feel like y'all deserve it, right? I mean, we've got some fantastic art artists here. So Bells, thank you for getting us connected with Climbing Arts and uh, for, for bringing this one in um, for, let's see, is this Anaclusmos? No, um, uh, Courier6 in Discord. Thank you a ton for this piece. This one, I believe, will be Anaclusmos. Yes, indeed. Uh, LOL9DH. Funky username, but thank you a ton for creating this piece for Anaclusmos. Tenacia, thank you a ton for this piece uh, for the storm over Camp Half-Blood. To our artists, for everyone who has just taken that, that artist tag over in Discord, um, thank you so much uh, for answering the call for those and for bringing art uh, and for creating art. That is wonderful. It really helps to kind of... Uh, elevate the experience of all of this. Now, let's go back to the library. Um, for everyone who is wondering who I am, what on earth this is, my name is Sam, this is Sidecar Stories, and we have just finished our chapters for the evening of Flying Sidecar. Um, tonight, of course, Percy Jackson and the Lightning Thief, chapters 9 and 10. Uh, that is it for us tonight on the reading front, but of course, we have still got discussion to have. We've still got our bad beans tradition where Sam is going to eat some birdie bots every flavor beans. We're going to do that. Everyone, I want to remind you really quickly, the Discord is the place to be. Um, you can follow this link right here that's in chat. Uh, that is the link to share. That is the link to follow if you want to find uh, you know, playlists and discussions and the old episodes and, and the streaming link. That is like, that is the ultimate link right there. That is the one link to rule them all. Uh, Linktree slash sidecar stories. That's L-I-N-K-T-R dot ee slash sidecar stories um that is the one to use that's the one to share around and if you follow that into the discord don't forget everyone we've made some massive updates over on the discord not just to organization but also go to the tags channel and in the tags channel you can select the things that you want to hear about um and then you can sort of treat discord as your personal like you know, uh, specified reminder location. That's one thing I really like about Discord is that I can use that instead of just pinging everyone every time I'm online, um, I ping you specifically for things that you're interested in. So go to the tags channel in Discord and, uh, you know, jump on that sort of thing. You can select tags for me, for some of our friends. And if you are looking for friends of Sidecar, uh, you can follow this link. I know it looks a lot like the last link, but instead of Sidecar Stories, this is Sidecar Sidekick. Um, Sidecar Sidekick is just my the, the bot that I use for certain things within this um, but right now my sidekick is presiding over the links for some friends for uh, of, of this channel including Louise the goat lady who I believe has just reached the number of followers required to achieve affiliate which is awesome super exciting and of course you can find other friends of ours there as well including Hogwarts hippie who I can see is here right now um, who does some uh, audio streaming over on spoon um, you know Louise the goat lady does little bites of homestead life tuna Sunday is a variety streamer and half bit is our ranger through some narrative games everyone I think that's our pretty much our full wrap-up I stream Tuesdays through Thursdays here with the one exception sometimes I stream on Fridays as well uh, and this week, so tomorrow, if you're watching this on YouTube, you're too late for the first one. But um, I will probably be, well, we'll see if I upload them. All I know is if you're here watching this on Twitch right now, come back tomorrow. We are playing Lord of the Mines Survival Island. Now, what on earth is this? Well, Lord of the Mines means two things. It's going to be in this shared Minecraft world. You've seen hints of it before, little, little bits, but frankly, we've done a bunch in there since then. Um, now, for some of you... 
MC Pro builders, like it might not register as a bunch, but we've got some really interesting projects and you can anticipate Lord of the Mines means it's going to be in this world and it's going to be some sort of competition. There's going to be some kind of mission, whether it's whether it's a competition or a competitive build, you know, friendly competition, maybe unfriendly competition. We're going to have to find out. Tomorrow is going to be Survival Island. And if you want to know what that means, you'll have to show up. You can anticipate uh, maybe maybe um, Hunger Games light, but uh, eventually we would love to bring viewers into that for special events and such. Uh, we're getting that kicked off tomorrow. Tomorrow will be the first Lord of the Mines. Head on in there, and we will see you there. Now, let's talk a bit about our chapter for the day. Let's talk a bit. We've learned quite a bit about our characters, haven't we? We've learned about the world as a whole um, in a process uh, often called exposition, right? This means uh, exposition. You can sort of break that word down, expose um, or exposit uh, if you're if you're feeling particularly fancy. But basically, it is just sort of telling us some things about the world that we didn't know before. Um, we're getting a lot of exposition in the form of uh, some from Grover, a little bit more from Annabeth, frankly, a little bit more sort of uh, specifics from Annabeth, and then a ton from Chiron um, about the, about the, I almost called it the wizarding world, about the world of myth. Um, this is, this is, of course, um, a, a very complicated world with a lot of really deep history, and for us to know exactly where we're sort of catching up with it, Chiron gives Percy the, the recap, much like Sam gives y'all the recap when we head into a, a new chapter. Um, watching all this go down, it is like, it is, it's, it's easy to see how this could be sort of beyond the understanding of the average mortal. The ability to sort of track all this stuff, um, especially over time, and to understand the real trends, that seems like something that kind of, you know, Chiron is probably one of a very few individuals who can really understand the full scope of all the trends within the history. Sparkle Lovegood says, so a hero is a half-blood that has completed a quest then? An interesting question. Yeah, what exactly is the requirement for being considered a hero? Because we know that, you know, they're, they're currently calling... Um, them, themselves and each other half-bloods or demigods, but not necessarily hero yet. We've heard that term thrown around. Uh, I've got a feeling this is going to be a little bit like um, uh, Warlock, right? We learned about Warlocks in Harry Potter a little bit, um, just in, in the sense that like it was a, it was a, a recognition of an achievement of some kind. Yeah, I think, I think that wouldn't surprise me if hero were indeed kind of the prerequisite for that. Let's see. Uh, yeah, Gems is saying, I thought a hero had to succeed on a quest. It is certainly possible. Maybe we'll understand that a bit more over time. Van Saves Lives says, I hadn't even considered that yet. It does seem like completing a quest would make sense to get that title. And JCA says, zero to hero. And I think that that little, that little saying is a really interesting one because I think it reflects a lot of what this genre likes to talk about, right? They like to discuss this thing because I think it, it really resonates well with, with the audience that it's designed for. Young adults, people in, in often middle school, sometimes high school, uh, who are looking at themselves and kind of wondering like what place do i really have in the world as a whole not in the not in the you know the the magical world or the uh, the world of myth i just mean in the real world in general what is my place here what do i belong what is my importance and that idea of zero to hero that's that's significant right um that is something that that People are trying to understand for themselves. They would they would love to have that story for themselves. And so I think, much like you know Harry Potter, who who went from sort of the 
the abused kid underneath the, the 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 steps to a hero in the Wizarding World, and now we're looking at Percy Jackson, sort of a uh, a kid having a hard time in school, getting sort of moved around from school to school, and now we shall see how his quest goes. Unfortunately, we know based on the prophecy, it might not all go perfectly well. Emmy Lou says, honestly, so many strong references to Hercules. Go the distance is all about figuring out where one belongs. Uh, yeah, I think, see, this is this is one of the things that, it, it feels like a reference to Hercules, but I think Hercules and Perseus, instead of, instead of Percy being a reference to Hercules, I think Percy and Hercules are both references back to something that is kind of core within a lot of us. And it's, it's, it's that exact idea, that precise idea that you've identified there, Emmy Lou, of figuring out where one belongs, right? What is my place in the world? What is this? What, do I, what am I here for? Do I matter? And if I do, why? And do, I, do, do the things that I do matter within that destiny? Super important. JCA says hero stories are always embellished after the fact, especially with retellings. I think that's part of it. But I think, yeah, as, as we are, if we were to consider these to be sort of real life stories, right? If we're to, if we're to consider, and you're absolutely right. And I would love to, boy, I would love to do a full, a full stream series just on how stories change over time. Uh, if y'all, if y'all really like that idea, go check out where the water tastes like wine. That's, that's what that game is all about. Um, but I, I think there's a there's a ton there, and I would love to discuss it, uh, JCA. And you're absolutely right. This idea that you know the stories are changing over time and they're organic. And you know, we've talked a little bit before about how now Rick Reardon has a place in the continuation of these stories throughout history. Right? I'm not saying that Greek myth would have died off, but it is certainly something where you know it is it continues to be relevant as it continues to be retold. And now, I think Rick Reardon has as much legitimacy as as the odyssey if we're going to be starting to continue the 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 um the grand tradition of continuing the story of greek myth right Con consider what that means for all of us you know he is rick reardon this guy in texas now has a place in sort of the the storyteller's pantheon underneath uh, sort of supporting the, the the continued tradition of telling the story of greek myth that's a lot. And so I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not discounting what you're saying, JCA. But if we are considering these to be real life, which, you know, if we sort of buy into the premise of these stories and we say, you know, Percy is Percy's a real, a real human and a real demigod. Um, and as such, you know, Hercules was as well. I think, I think, you know, if we sort of consider those to be uh, true stories that all happened, maybe not precisely how they are retold, but in a way, um, you know, if, 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 if really Hercules had been superhuman in these ways, um, I think, I think we'll start to understand a bit about how these stories are kind of structured. Um, and, uh, especially why certain stories like this idea of trying to find out where I belong and, and the, 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 the fantasy, the very attractive fantasy of, of saying like, well, I might be, you know, maybe I'd be a hero of some sort. Um, I'm going to make a, uh, I'm going to be honest, kind of an embarrassing revelation to you all here because, you know, we, we, on a channel that seems so, you know, like we've read The Great Gatsby and we've read, you know, Frankenstein. I want to read Shakespeare as soon as I can. Um, it's probably going to sound a little odd to some of y'all for Sam to admit that one of my favorite um, songs from any musical is Who I'd Be From, which musical? Why, yes, it is the Shrek musical. 
it is a song about this idea of like if i could be if i could be something i would want to be kind of important in some way it kind of doesn't really matter how but this i think is a great intersection of this grand tradition of of uh, not just Greek myths, but all of the various stories that talk about your place in the world and your your sense of belonging and, and your sense of importance in, in the world, importance to yourself and importance to other people, to connect that back with this specific audience, very young adults. The connection of those two things had been lost on me for a long time, but I'm starting to put the pieces together now. I think that's really significant. Right. This is this is a question that will will continue to be a part of people's lives as they grow older. This question of, am I important, and if so, why? But connecting it back to this particular demographic, this this particular age group of of really young adults, middle school, high school, it speaks to it speaks to their experience, which is on a lower scale. But of course, your experience is all subjective. To you, the most important thing in your life is as big as the most important thing in anyone else's life. Something to think about. JCA says, imagining the text as a sacred text and that uh, uh, and that it happened or we can learn from reading an old story or, uh, or rereading it. Um, you're different even when you reread something, which could mean that you will find new things from it. You'll see details or connect with different stories differently. Yeah, we've talked about that a lot here on the channel. Um, um, the idea of you come to art from where you are. And if you come to art a second time, you're coming from a different place than you came from the first time, which means you're coming at it from kind of a different angle. And you can definitely, definitely get more out of it. Um, uh, I had that exact experience. My experience of reading Harry Potter out loud, those, and I, I, I really like this, it was over a million words. I'm really glad it wasn't like just short of a million words because I can just confidently say like, over the million words that I read to y'all um, throughout the Harry Potter series, um, I definitely had a new and enriched experience with it than uh, compared to the first time that I read it. Everyone have a fantastic night, and I will see y'all later. Bye-bye.